0: When I was in middle school, I had a bully. Now, that's a really serious term in today's culture. We take that very seriously, and, and it was serious then. I, I had a bully, and I had a guy who picked on me all the time, and he was mean, man. He would, he would always say mean things to me. I was, a little, I was a little chunky in my middle school days, and so uh, he, would, he would make fun of my weight in front of people, and he was really, really cruel to me. Now, this guy, this guy was the quintessential 80s bully. This dude, he he wore like white t-shirts, and I'm not kidding, like a camouflage jacket every day and black Converse sneakers. Quintessential bully. And he was so mean, and it was months and months and months of him treating me poorly at school. I was afraid of him. I would avoid him. I would run away from him. And then one day, I was walking out of the gym, and I was alone. I was all by myself. Nobody else was around. And I was about to open the door and exit the gym. And I happened to turn and look back behind me and he was coming. And nobody else was around and this bully was following me out. So I was standing there and I realized I have an option here. I can stand here and I can kind of try to face him. I can just run away, which I most likely, what I most commonly did. But something happened in that moment where I didn't choose either of those options. I opened the door And all the lessons of my parents came back to me. And I thought, I'm just gonna stand here and hold this door for this guy. So I stood there with my little junior high self and I opened this door for this bully. And he was walking towards the door and he stopped in his tracks and he said, you're gonna hold the door open for me? And I just said very eloquently, yes. And he didn't say anything else. He quietly walks through the door he walked on out on the playground and he never was mean to me again. It absolutely changed our relationship. In 1915, there was a scientist named Walter Cannon and he coined this phrase, the acute stress response. It was this theory that said when humans face danger or some kind of conflict, they will either stand and fight back or they're gonna run away. Today, we know this as fight or flight. Now do me a favor, just let us know in the comments. Just talk to us for a second and let me know, are you are you a fight person do you think or are you a flight person? Just put fight or flight, just type it in really quick. Just let us know. And if you're neither, just give us a big heart or a big thumbs up or something and say you're all about love. Either way. The belief in our world today though is that you're one or the other. You're fight or you're flight. But is that the only way that we can and should respond to conflict or trouble in our lives? And does Jesus agree that these are our only two choices? We're in this series, we're calling it What If Jesus Was Serious? And we're traveling through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now remember, this is not a list of positive lifestyle principles that you and I are supposed to try to live by. No, the Sermon on the Mount, it is the description of life in the kingdom of God. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. So through this series, we're just continually asking, what if Jesus was serious about this? Because a lot of Christians today feel like they're being pushed back to the edges of our culture. They're not allowed to participate. And they think it's happening because they take Jesus too seriously. But what if it's because we haven't taken Jesus seriously enough? What if we've missed it? What if we've missed the invitation to life in the kingdom of God here on the earth? And that's what this series is about. So today we're in Matthew chapter five, verse 38. And here's what it says. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So we're working through these six statements from Jesus called the antitheses, now, scholars believe that rabbis in, in this culture would commonly, when they're teaching the Torah, they would say, now you have heard it said, and they would explain their commentary on it. But Jesus is the first one to come along and to say, but I tell you this. And it totally freaked out everybody that's listening. All of them are saying, who, who does this guy think that he is? Now, this text that we're reading today, it's widely known, we, most of us have heard it, but it's not necessarily often applied. In fact, it's been totally misunderstood and probably most of us, we misapply it on the regular. In order for us to understand it though, we got to understand what it meant in the original context. So Jesus is quoting from three places here in the Torah. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. This was the kind of a, it was kind of the, the guide for punishment in their culture. This was a way to say that the punishment has to fit the crime. So So if somebody steals something from you, you can't go over, slaughter all their animals and burn their entire house down. That's not how this works. So most scholars believe that this really wasn't meant to be enforced literally. Like this is more a metaphor, it was a guide. It was a way to help maintain justice. And it wasn't an individual guideline either, meaning to be enacted by individuals, this was supposed to be applied by the governing authorities. So an individual can't just say, hey, you poked me in my eye, just stand still. I'm going to remove your eye. That's not how this worked. So the governing authorities were the ones who would apply this and defend the victims. They were the ones who would apply justice, protect the parties, watch out for crime. So notice here in this passage, who Jesus is speaking to. Now, remember, This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to disciples, but also to the crowds who've shown up and just ordinary Joes, just like you and me, ordinary people that have gathered here. But these people are living under a Roman occupation and you all, they hate it. Rome is abusive, it's difficult. So so Jesus is actually speaking to the people who are not in power. Jesus is speaking to those who are not in power. And what these people want is they want a Messiah. They want a deliverer. They're expecting someone to show up on the scene, overthrow the Romans, and restore the people of Israel to their rightful place. And so Jesus comes along and he starts saying stuff like, hey, you need to turn the other cheek. And so everybody's like, what? So today, across all of our campuses, we're borrowing some of the work of Darren Whitehead. He's a pastor in Nashville, as well as the book, What If Jesus Was Serious by Sky Jatani. So in verse 38, he says, You've heard it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. So Jesus says, turn the other cheek. We've heard this. Why does he say though, right cheek? Why does Jesus not just say cheek? He could have simply said cheek. Well, here's the deal. The left hand, everybody would know in that culture that the left hand was never to be used socially at all. And it's because the left hand was supposed to be used for... Well, just for other things in the culture, other things to clean up themselves. You can imagine that yourself. I won't say any more about that here, but you wouldn't use the left hand for anything else with people because you use that for you. So everybody knew, don't use your left hand, use your right hand. So if someone's using a right hand then, and Jesus says, strike the right cheek, this is not a weird slap like this. This is a backhand. This is a backhand to somebody. So this is actually an act of shaming another person. This is a way for you to say, you are an inferior to me. This might be a way to say, you're, you're just a slave or you're, you're in this culture, you're a child or again, in this culture, you're, you're lower than everybody else. You're a woman, you're lower than everybody else. It's their culture, not ours. So this is a shame and honor culture, which we don't necessarily understand too much about, but I think we're getting idea now with social media and cancel culture, we're starting to understand what a shame and honor culture is like because you do the wrong thing and you are shamed. So Jesus actually is not talking about violence here in this passage, he's talking about dishonor. Think of like the Bugs Bunny cartoons where you know the cartoon character peels off the glove and then smacks the person across the face. And this is what we're talking about. So does Jesus choose fight or does Jesus choose flight? He says, if they strike your right cheek, turn to them the other one also. So now the one who is slapping is put in a very unique situation. Okay, so, so you didn't run. You didn't cower. Now I don't know what to do because I could slap you again, but that's like telling the same joke twice. It's really not going to have the benefit that I want. So this act was meant to shame you, but it didn't work. Turning the other cheek isn't about being cowardly and it's not about letting people walk all over you for Jesus. It's not what this is. This is standing up in the face of oppression, refusing to be defined by the oppressor. This is an act of dignity. N.T. Wright, author and theologian says, offering the other cheek implies, hit me again if you like, but now as an equal, not an inferior. Continuing on in verse 40, he says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So Jesus says, hey, give him your coat too. So from this language, we can tell this is a legal proceeding. There's some sort of a debt involved here. So we've got a shirt and some translations will say tunic. So that's like your undergarment. It's what's worn uh, on top of your skin. And then you've got a coat. Some translations will call it a cloak. That's the like a long outer garment that actually would often be used for sleeping purposes. This is the thing that would like keep you warm. Like think of a... Think of a Snuggie. That's kind of like what this is. So under Mosaic law, nobody could take your cloak. Nobody could take your coat. That was illegal. So if a guy's being sued for his undershirt in this passage, it's pretty safe to assume they've got nothing else left. They've got nothing. They're poor. They've already lost everything. And Jesus says, if you're in that position, don't just give them the shirt, but give them the thing they can't legally take from you you give them your coat. Scholars think this would mean you're nearly naked standing there. And this would be a shameful thing. It'd be shameful, not just for you, but it would be shameful in that culture for everybody that saw you, including the person who sued you. And so now the tables are turned. He's taken everything from you. He's caused you shame. It's highlighted the absurdity of this guy's abuse towards you. But now the oppressor is being shamed for his actions. And as this takes place, maybe in this courtroom, this other guy, this guy who's coming after you, he looks and he goes, this was a bad idea. I I should not, I should not have done this. Do you see it? Like Jesus teaching, it cuts through all the ways that we size each other up in our society by looking at income or, or looking at race or religion. Are they better than me? Are they worse than me? No, Jesus cuts right through and says, everybody is made in the image of God. And therefore, everybody has inherent value and deserves dignity and the love of God. Let's keep going in verse 41. He says, if anybody forces you to go one mile, you go with them two miles. Now, pretty much all of us have heard this and even used it at some time. But here in first century in Israel, Roman soldiers could legally force force someone to go and carry their pack for them. So these packs were big, like it carried all their supplies and they might be up to 85 pounds, but they could only do it for one mile. So if they forced you to go more, now the soldier, he's gonna be in trouble. From his commanding officer, he's gonna get in trouble. So Jesus says, hey, if a Roman soldier does this to you, just go along with him. And then just keep going. Just keep walking. And the soldier suddenly finds himself in a position that he's never been in before. Because everybody else that he gets, I mean, they're complaining the whole time. I can't believe this. They're grumbling under their breath. They're so irritated. And Jesus says, no, keep going. Instead, shift the power. So now this soldier's like, hey, hey, whoa, hey. Yo, man, yo, hey, can you put my pack down? Hey, man, hey, yo, stop. Hey, dude, please stop carrying my pack. Yo, bro, my commanding officer is going to see me. I'm going to get in trouble. Just stop. In three stories, Jesus is teaching the oppressed, the people not in power, how to remove power from their oppressor. He says, do the unexpected. Use a peaceful act of defiance that actually restores dignity. See, Jesus is showing everyone, you can't reduce people to slaves. You can't reduce people to objects. Every human being is made in the image of God and is worthy of his love. So in our culture, fight or flight says, you can only respond with two options. But Jesus says, no, there's a third way. In the kingdom, there's always a third way. And it's what theologians call peacemaking. And you're familiar with it already because you know names like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. You've seen people use peacemaking. And they didn't just peacefully work to stop violence and to try to end injustice in their world. They worked actually to save and redeem the heart of the unjust person that's oppressing them. It's a third way. And hey, everybody, it's a description of the kingdom of God. I heard a story about a guy named Julio Diaz. Julio Diaz is a social worker. He's in his 30s. He lives in the Bronx, New York and he rides the subway to and from work every day. He's got about an hour commute. And every night he gets off the subway and he goes to a diner that he loves and he eats dinner there. Well, one night he gets off the train and he looks around to an empty platform in New York City. And as he's on his way, a teenage boy jumps out of the shadows, pulls a knife on him and says, give me your wallet. So Julio stands back, he reaches in, pulls out his wallet, hands it to this kid. The kid turns around, starts to leave. And Julio says, hey, yay, yo, man. Hey, you forgot something. It's cold out there. You should take my coat. The kid's like, what? <laughs> I should take your coat? What do you mean I should take your coat? And he says, why are you doing this? And Julio says, well, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few bucks, you must really need it. All I want to do is go get some dinner, man. So you know what? If you've got nothing else to do, I, you're more than welcome to come with me. The kid says, okay. And so off they go, going off to Julio's favorite diner. And they walk into the diner. On the way in, Julio's saying hey to all his friends, and people that he knows. They go to a booth and they sit down and they start talking. Julio says to the kid, hey, what, do you, what do you want out of life? What are you hoping to get out of this life? And the kid just says, man, I, I, don't, I don't know. And the kid's been watching him as Julio's interacting with everybody. And he says, hey man, hey, do you own this diner? And Julio says, no, nah, man, I just, I just come here a lot. I just know everybody. Kid says, you're so nice to everyone. You just know everybody and you're so nice to people. I mean, it's really cool. Like, it's great. I, I, just, didn't know, I just didn't know that people did that. I didn't know people live like that. So Julio, they talked a little longer and Julio said, hey, listen, if you'll give me back my wallet, I'll be happy to treat you to dinner tonight. Kid says, okay. He hands his wallet back. Julio pays for his dinner. And then Julio said one more thing. He says, I just just want you to give me something. Why don't you give me that knife too? Kid scooted the knife across the table. Julio picked it up, took it home with him. Now, I just want you to imagine with me what that kid was thinking about when he went home and put his head on the pillow that night. Because Julio could have fought back. Julio could have called the cops. Julio could have pressed charges against the kid. He didn't do that. He chose A third way. And everybody, this is a picture of the kingdom of God. And it's a picture, by the way, that Jesus himself embodied. In Philippians chapter two, it says, "'Who being in very nature God "'did not consider equality with God "'something to be used to his own advantage. "'Rather, he made himself nothing "'by taking the very nature of a servant, "'being made in human likeness, "'and being found in appearance as a man, "'he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, "'even death on a cross.'" Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus embodied this idea. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking what I'm thinking, because right now I'm thinking, okay, like this is tough. Like if, so if Jesus was really serious about this, what in the world are we supposed to do? Well, One thing that I want you to consider this morning, and it's this, if Jesus was serious, then I think we all have to believe that self-sacrifice, it extends even to our enemies. Most of us would say that we're trying to lay our lives down for family members or really close friends, but it's really hard, but we don't give it even the time of day when it comes to our enemies. So Jesus' words about retaliation in this passage, man, it makes me uncomfortable Like, I I don't know what to do with it. Like, he calls me to turn the other cheek, to give up my coat and my shirt, to go the extra mile when I didn't want to go one. He says all these things to me, to give more than what's been demanded, it just seems like it's nonsense. Like, if you're any kind of sensible person, this is nonsense. If you live like that in this world, how are you ever going to get ahead? Everybody's always going to step on you and walk all over you. So what we do is we try to reinterpret this teaching from Jesus. We wanna make these counterintuitive commands seem like they're just more conventional or at a minimum, less ridiculous. Really, what I think we want is we wanna justify ourselves. We wanna rationalize, we wanna justify our anger at other people. We wanna be able to retaliate. I wanna be able to resist. I wanna resist the people that are gonna interfere with me and my life and what I want. We want to believe that our selfishness, our desire for self-preservation, it's not just an acceptable thing to do, but it's actually an admirable quality for a Jesus follower. That's what we want to believe. Jesus doesn't leave room for any of those arguments. We can't, we can't live in any way like that because in his kingdom, love is the way. Love is the way of this kingdom and it is all-encompassing. And so self sacrificial love has to override and restrain our desire to retaliate, to fight, and to push back. Don't just see these statements here in the Sermon on the Mount as commands that we're supposed to obey. We need to see them as illustrations of a life that is shaped by God's kingdom. What we're talking about today, these are examples of what happens when we consider what's best for the other person even if that person is our enemy. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but do it to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And to this you were called, Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the disruptive teaching of Jesus. This is the description of the kingdom of God. This right here, this is salt and light. This is what that all looks like. And this is all opposed to the culture of our day. In our American way of life. But here's the real secret. When you lay your life down for somebody else, and yes, even your enemy, that actually sets you free. That's the power of the countercultural community of Jesus in his kingdom. And that's when a church like us, we're not just a group that looks like everybody else, only, only we're Christian. We do what they do, we look like they look like, we smell like they smell like, we do everything they do, it was just that we're Christians. No, this is a group of people that look different from the entire rest of the world. You know, there's something that happens to all of us when we go and watch a movie. Don't you miss movies? I so miss movies. There's something that happens right before the movie and you watch a movie trailer, and everybody, it doesn't matter who you are, everybody has the same involuntary human response after watching a movie trailer. You can't help it. It's over, and you have to turn to the person next to you and say, that looks pretty good. Or you turn and say, no, I don't think so. I'm not interested. Every single person does it. You gotta look at the person and give your opinion. You just can't help it. That looks good, or I'm never gonna see that. Hey, One Chapel, we are the movie trailer for the kingdom of God. You and I are the movie trailer. We're the preview for the world that is to come and yet is already here. So when the world sees it, they say, oh my goodness, that looks remarkable. Sadly though, I think the world looks at the church and we tend to look like everybody else and we fight or it's flight, and the world looks at us and go, no, I don't think so. That's just like everybody else, and I'm not interested. No, no, we take Jesus seriously. Hey, One Chapel, we can take Jesus seriously. And in turn, our culture then begins to take him seriously too. So if you're like me today, you're probably saying what I'm saying. Okay, this is impossible. It's impossible, I can't. I can't live this way. You don't know who I know. You don't know who I've been living with. You don't know who I'm working for. Is it impossible? Well, yeah, actually, I think it is. It's impossible for us if we do it on our own. But Jesus' teaching, it's not just good advice. It's good news. Jesus' teaching isn't just some things that you're supposed to do on your own. It's good news, meaning he's already done everything that you need for you to be able to do this. Jesus did all this himself, and then he opened up a new way of being human that he calls us into so that everybody who follows him gets to do this. When Jesus was mocked, when they mocked him, he didn't respond to it. We just read this passage. When they challenged him, he told quizzical and oftentimes actually really funny stories and he forced them to think differently. When they struck him, he took the pain. When they put the cross on his back, he carried it himself to his own execution. And when they nailed him to the cross, he prayed for them. The sermon on the Mount is not just about you and me. We can't just look at this today and see it as a set of ideals And then once we've read it, that's really good and nice. Now I'm going to get back to real living, real life. Now the Sermon on the Mount, this is about Jesus himself because this is the blueprint for his own life. And it's what you and I are invited into by his spirit and by his grace. And I'm just telling you that this, this that we're talking about today, this is real living. This is the real stuff. This is the kingdom. You bow your heads and close your eyes. And right where you are, I just want you to open up your heart and mind and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And ask this question Who are the people in your life right now that you need a third way to deal with? What are the circumstances, the situations? the conflicts, the troubles, the things that you're going through right now, what are they in your life? And you need a third way in knowing how to handle them because fighting isn't working, running away isn't working. You need the spirit of God in his kingdom to give you a third way to respond. Now, right now, just ask God to show that to you. I believe that he will. Ask him to show it to you and reveal third way solutions to you and I'm going to pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you for this idea. And we just want to be honest, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do it. We don't know how to follow. We we don't know how to choose a third way. What we know is fight, what we know is flight. And so we surrender ourselves. We surrender our ways of thinking. We surrender the American way. We, we surrender all of these things to you, asking you, Jesus, help us to find the third way in every specific situation that these people are dealing with. Everybody that calls One Chapel Home and everybody who's just checking it out today, give us wisdom and grace to be able to find third way solutions to live in this world. If we're the movie trailer for the world that is to come, but it's already here, we want people to look at us and say, that's incredible. I want to be part of that. So Jesus, we can't do that without you. So we ask that you would give us the wisdom, that you would give us the grace, that you would give us the endurance to be able to listen and to follow you as you present the third way. And we'll go with you and do what you say. Jesus, In every living room, in every car, in every room across this region, and really across the world today, we surrender our lives to you. We believe in you. We wanna follow you. So the best way we know how today, we're giving our lives to you. Let one chapel be a place that deals in the third way. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name and everybody at home said, amen.